Well, good morning. We are uh, still taking a break from David and his many travails. I, I, again, I can only take so much of what's going on in his life. I need, I need just to step back, breathe some fresh air. Uh, today is also what they call Reformation Sunday. And um, I know some of you, there's a lot of visitors here. Hello, everyone. Um, we do something here from time to time where we take up various themes. We do artillery sermons, they're called. Um, which is uh, from the Puritans when they would stand in front of the military and deliver sermons to the government. We do those from time to time. We have one coming up now that it's election season. But from now on, on Reformation Day, what we're going to do is actually uh, the sermons are going to have themes. And the themes are the heritage that we have as, uh, as Reformed Protestants, as Reformed Evangelicals, uh, as Presbyterians. So today what we're going to be doing is looking at Acts chapter 15, now, some of you may have heard Doug Wilson talk about weapons-grade Calvinism, uh, which I am a huge fan of. Load us up. But today what you're going to hear is some weapons-grade Presbyterianism. Um, it is not some – some people think that we're Presbyterians just by accident, um, but after today I think that you will understand that that is not the case. <laughs> so Acts 15, verses 1 through 21 is what we're going to be d- discussing. And before we open the Lord's word, let us seek his face and seek his uh, blessing. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, um, for the generations after generations of faithful saints who you have called into your kingdom, who you have sent into this world to uh, lay claim to it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, as we celebrate today, that we would not uh, celebrate just individual men and women, individual events in history, but that behind it all, we would remember your grace, your goodness, your power, your mercy, your desire, Lord, to see this world truly and completely transformed and renewed and remade, that you you long to see the fall reversed and the people of this world delivered. We thank you that that process is not quickly quickly done. We, We thank you that it is a slow process. We couldn't handle it if it was any faster. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear in your text this morning what is true and good and beautiful, and that we would live accordingly. We thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, many of you have heard us talk about Presbytery. Now, what is Presbytery? Why do we go to Presbytery? It, it uh, could be claimed by some that the reason I go to Presbytery is because the cigars that they hand out there are better than the ones I buy myself. That's actually true, they are. But that's not why I go. That's just one of the benefits of going. To most of us, it's some vague meeting that Joel and I, or Dean and I, used to attend annually. But what is it? Why is it? What, what's the point of the whole thing? Now, a Presbytery is a form of church polity. And today, what I want to do is, what I normally do in sermons is I try to get out all of the jargon, take all the jargon out. But what I want to do today is actually teach you some jargon, okay? I want you thinking and acting and talking like Presbyterians. So polity is the word that we use for government. Presbyterian polity is Presbyterian government. It's church government. And how churches are governed is not arbitrary. It's not about mere preference. It's not a happenstance. I think we have to be very intentional about how churches are governed. Polity is a big deal. Now, back in 2001, the session at that time of this church, which was an independent church, this used to be called Tree of Life back in the day. Most of you don't know, but we're, I think, in our 40th year is existing continually. Covey? 
1985, yeah, I'm not going to do that math. This church has been around for a while, and there was a time where it was an independent church without any sort of affiliation with other churches, and through certain circumstances that occurred, the session back in 2001 thought, you know what we ought to do is have some oversight. You know what we ought to do is team up with some other Christians and and, and get some guidance and provide guidance and have a, a relationship of mutual submission and oversight, and and because the session at the time understood its responsibility as elders. Elders put things in good order. And in 2001, the elders of this church determined that in order to do things in good order, what they needed to do was join the CREC. Now, what is the CREC? Well, it's the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. What a name, okay? All the other uh, names with Presbyterian in the title were already taken, the OPC, EPC, APC, LPC. So we decided to go with a different direction. Now, what's also funny is that originally it was called the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, but our brother pastors down in the South thought Confederation was a hard sell. <laughs> and so we changed it to Communion. But the idea of joining the CRC was about putting the church in good order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, But all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, those of us who have remained here in Seattle, in Washington, we have a responsibility. And our responsibility is to appoint elders who are going to put things in order. Now, we all agree, looking about the landscape of Christians in the Pacific Northwest, some order is needed. Doing things decently is needed. It's a little chaotic out here. Uh, other ministers that I know and say the Orthodox Presbyterian Church refer to the Pacific Northwest in the, in the sense of the church as the Wild West. I couldn't agree more. I feel like it's sort of these camp towns where somebody found silver and they disappointed some guy as sheriff right, of the local church. This is what it feels like sometimes out here. Now, the unity of the modern church in America is fractured. The modern American church is rootless. It's rootless. It doesn't know its history. It doesn't know its place. It doesn't know its purpose. It doesn't know where it came from. It doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't know why it exists. For example, you can be excommunicated in a church and merely move down the street to the next one, and that next church has no idea what occurred at your previous church. Nobody ever asks. If the songs don't catch your fancy or if the coffee is not made well, it's easier at this point to change churches than to change apartments. House churches and independent community churches thrive in an atmosphere where individualism is chief among the cultural idols. We live in a time that could be best described as all Israel to her tents. The rule of faith, the creeds, the confessions, they no longer govern us as the people of God. We don't even know what it means to be governed by them. Now, as the Peanuts cartoon, this is one of my favorite cartoons of all time. You guys know the Peanuts, right? Charlie Brown. Well, Sally Brown sits down to write a paper on church history and begins with her pastor's birthday. And I think at the time, Charles Schultz, who was a believer, was making an excellent point, right? This is what we think church history is. Um, I, I don't know how many times I've been asked why we don't play the old traditional hymns, you know, the ones from the 50s, when we are playing the ones from the 1500s, right? And people are like, what's with these new songs? These are not new songs, 
Okay? These are old songs. The songs you're talking about were written by your pastor who was born in 1960. Okay, small communities of Christians operate these days without foundations, without vision, without oversight, and they wonder why they do not thrive. Now, doing things decently and in order requires men to organize, to oversee, to teach and preach the whole counsel of God as they live the whole counsel of God. A plurality of elders is the first thing to put right in a local church. That's the first thing you need. That's what Paul told Titus and Crete. If you want to put things in order, the first thing you do is you get a, a group of elders together. Now, the first thing that they will do is put worship in order and then discipleship in order and then work with other elders from other churches to put the church in order. That's what we see in Acts. You have independent churches like Antioch, and they run into a problem, and they say, well, what are we going to do now? They say, well, let's send delegates to Jerusalem and let them discuss what we should do, and then, and, and then we'll be guided by their decision. That's what you find in Acts. Independent churches, good elders, upstanding elders who don't know what to do, seek help from other elders. Now, anyone who wants to lead, who won't themselves submit to others, should be avoided. Okay? Anyone who wants to be in charge of something, who themselves will not follow the leadership of other people, ought to just, you should stay far, 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 far away from them. Okay? Christians who want to go out on their own, starting home churches or churches or Christian parent church organizations outside any current manifestation of the local church, unaccountable to anybody, right? I, I, I met a guy recently who set up something, set up shop here in town and didn't talk to anyone who was already, a, any church that already existed in this area. And he was talking to me about teaming up with them, and I said, no, no thanks. You don't want to meet? No, I don't want to meet. Why? Because... You, you're, it's like after the fact. You're here, you're already operating, acting as if there was no such thing as a church in this area beforehand. And for me, this is like a train wreck. This is a train wreck waiting to happen. I don't have the time to fix it, okay? Because you, you got going in the wrong direction. This, this is what I'm talking about. People who want to operate independently of any other church organization that already exists in the area are very dangerous people. If you go through the entire New Testament, you will not find a single instance where someone sets up shop by themselves without first doing what, right? They're sent or, right, in dreams they're called for, right? But what you find are elders and apostles going around, setting up shop in local places and then leaving them to do business. They don't control them. They don't micromanage them. They set up shop there and then they say, okay, guys, you are qualified. Have at it. That is the way that things are supposed to be done. Now, and throughout all this, again, I mentioned jargon. So some of the jargon, some of the reason that makes this uh, sermon like this so difficult is we hear different things. Like, what is a synod? What is a general assembly? What is a conference, a convention? What's a presbytery? All these different words are used, I think, largely to describe the same thing, actually. Even the Southern Baptist Convention functions like a presbytery in the sense that delegates come there representing local churches, and, the, and all of those delegates decide together, like in Acts 15, what they're going to do. So all of these things, conventions, synods, general assemblies, presbyteries, lo and behold, exist in Protestant churches that descend from the Reformation. That's not an accident, because during the Reformation, some of the guys started reading Greek, and they were like, wait a minute, this is not at all how things are supposed to function. What's with the funny hats? 
What's with the weird scepters? Why do the bishops live in palaces? I'm very confused. And so what they did was they threw all that out, and they went back, and they founded church governments based on the scriptures. That's what they did. And that is what I'm advocating for. If we want to put things in order, we ought to put things in order according to the New Testament. Now, modern Christians tend toward fundamentalism. That's what we tend towards. Why all this? Why? Why bureaucracy? Why not keep it simple? And, and I, I, I like people who think this way. Keeping it simple is very helpful. If, if you ask my wife, generally when we are trying to discuss things, our lives are very busy, the first thing I say is whatever is simplest. Just do whatever is simplest. But you run into a problem when dealing with church business when you want to simply keep it simple because things are not simple. Okay? If you sit down with a Baptist and Reformed guy and you start talking about baptism, it's not simple. And, and what I have always found since I became a Christian is people, certain people are like, you know what, we should just have a church like Acts 2. Acts 2 church, what's wrong with that? They lived together, they prayed together, they ate together, they owned everything together. It was fantastic. It's like a commune. Well, the problem is the church didn't stay in the same structure as you find in Acts 2. Right? If you want a church like the apostles have, what you have to do is watch how it developed. You've got to read Acts 2 and Acts 5. You've got to read Acts 15 and Acts 20. And then you go and you read Titus in First and 2 Timothy, and you think, wow, things have really evolved. Now, here's an example of not keeping things simple. Right? There, there, there's a time and a place to keeping things simple. But in Acts 6, when they uh, appointed the first deacons, were they keeping things simple, or were they adding bureaucracy? Were they adding structure? The Greeks and the Hellenists do not agree. The, the Hellenists say, hey, guys, you're leaving out our widows. Stop it. And the elders say, you know what, you guys, I can tell that this is creating friction, and friction is bad, and so let's separate. Right? That's what modern Christians would do. You get two groups in a church, you're like, you know what would be easier is making two churches. No, the apostles are like, you know what, how about we create an office, and we appoint people, and then we have to come up with qualifications for that office, we've got to figure out how that office works with the office that already exists, elders. And what they do is they add complexity in order to better lead the church. That's what they're doing. And in Acts 15, it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> because if you, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. I got to travel 250 miles. I got to walk from Antioch to Jerusalem to debate people. That sounds too complicated. That sounds too difficult. Let's just keep it simple. And Antioch will become independent now. And, the, and within Antioch, we'll now have seven churches. And everybody can go to the church that they prefer. That's what modern Christians would do. Now, what you see is that the apostles do not always keep things simple. Sometimes they make things more complicated. And by doing so, what they're doing is putting things in order, right? Now, a shelf is more complicated than a pile on the floor. Shelves within shelves is even more complicated. But what do you have? More order. And what we're going to see is that sometimes you add order and add order and add order. You put it in the hands of men, and it takes a couple of generations. And what you got to do is burn the shelf down and start over. That is true. And we're going to, re even in the CRC Constitution, it tells us what to do once we all become liberals. In a couple of generations, once we all sell out and become liberals and start ordaining women, actually our Constitution tells us what to do. Now the reason Presbytery, the word Presbytery, is a more biblical form of church government, yes, I said it, is because of the vocabulary. Now the Greek word episkopos and presbyteros, I'm sorry about that, is, sorry Laura, wherever you are, episkopos and presbyteros. Those are two Greek words that are translated elder. Presbyteros is most often used in reference to elders. And so in, in 
common parlance amongst Reformed people. An elder is a presbyter. So Joel and myself and Jared are presbyters. We don't call ourselves that because we're Presbyterians. We call ourselves that because, according to the New Testament, we are presbyters. That's what we are. We're elders. Now, this throws people because there's these different words, and sometimes they're used in such a way as to give people the impression that some people are more important than others. Episcoposes are sometimes more important than presbyters. Um, But there are a few times, such as in Acts 20 and Titus 1, where the the words are used interchangeably, and there's no difference between them. So an episcopos is a presbyter, is an overseer, is an elder, is a pastor, whatever. Who cares? Now, just to let the cat out of the bag, there is occasionally where episcopos means an elder overseeing other elders. Now, that, what that does not mean is give me a palace and a scepter and a funny hat and let me rule the world like the Pope wants to do. That's not what it means. But when I go to Presbytery, there is a presiding minister who is there, <laughs> and nobody ever wants this job because you're like a clerk. You're like a guy trying to herd cats, right? You're trying to argue between John Decker with a Ph.D. and this guy with a Ph.D., and everyone's just like, can't we have cigars already? Okay, sometimes it's chaos. And what you have to have is a presiding minister an episcopos who actually sets things, he's overseeing the other elders just to keep things from getting chaotic. It's really funny because when I go to Eastern Europe, they call me Bishop Kloss, which in my ears is just like, like my iconoclasm comes out and I just want to burn down a statue of some saint. It's terrible. But all they mean is I'm there to put things in order amongst the other ministers. So these words are used interchangeably and it throws people. But basically, my point is this. Elders are presbyters. So right out of the gate, if you're an elder, you're a Presbyterian. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Look, one, I won the argument. I'm done now. I'm just kidding. The word Presbytery occurs in 1 Timothy 4.14, where it notes the body of Christian elders who laid hands on Timothy. So clearly there's some standing body who decides who gets to be a pastor and who doesn't get to be a pastor, and they are the ones who lay hands on Timothy and send him out to do his work. So by the time 1 Timothy is written, what you have is an, a functioning Presbytery, presbyters who sit and make decisions and decide between this guy and that guy who's going to minister to the people of God. But the word is used before that, actually. In Luke twenty-two sixty-six, it's used, and it's translated the assembly of the elders. In Acts twenty-two five, it says the whole council of elders. So this was a word when they sat down to write the New Testament. They were already using the word presbytery. And what it meant was a sitting of the elders, the presbyters. That's all it means. That's what a presbytery func- on a bottom line is. Presbyters who are elders sitting together making decisions. Okay? And you can, you, can simplif- you can have a simple version of that, or you can have the PCA, sorry, which is very complicated. Now, here's where things get very awkward for us. There is another group in the New Testament who are called the sitting together, and that is the Sanhedrin. <gasps> and this, when you start saying that Presbyterians are like the Sanhedrin, everybody gets a very, very uncomfortable because the Sanhedrin are the bad guys. You're like, why would you want, right? Batman doesn't start conducting his business like the Joker. What are you doing? Well, the Sanhedrin, when it originally began, was a Puritan body. It's a ref- The origin story of the Sanhedrin is very interesting. We're going to talk about that actually during Advent. When they came on the scene, they were restoring a council of elders in Israel, like the one Moses had in Numbers 11, so that they could oversee the function of the government in Israel, and they were pure and upright and good and godly men. But what happens to a group 
over time. What did I already say, right? What happened to the U.S. Senate? What happened to the U.S. government generally? What happens to any assembly over time in the hands of men is that it becomes corrupt and becomes evil and must be done away with. Now, again, I'm, now this is the juicy part. This is a, is a book that was a gift. The Governing Documents of the CREC. This is a beautiful work. If you ever have time, don't read it. I'm just kidding. That's why you, that's why you pay Joel and I the big dollars, right? To read this thing. But this is what it has to say about succession. This is what it has to say about the CREC when it becomes liberal, which is what they assume. Now, with patterns of church order and confessional standards, one of the fundamental requirements of Scripture is honesty. Consequently, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we charge you, the generations who follow us in this confederation, to submit to the Scriptures with sincere and honest hearts and to the standards of this confederation as consistent with the teaching of Scripture. When a portion of our order and confession is found to be out of conformity with Scripture, we charge you to amend it honestly, openly, and constitutionally as men who must give an account to God, to the God who searches the hearts of men. We charge you in the name of the Lord to abhor all forms of ignoring our intentions and what we have set down through dissembling, reinterpretation, dishonesty, relativism, pretended explanations, presumed spiritual maturity, assumed scholarly sophistication, compromise with any forms of sexual and gender-related act- activism, or outright lying, so that the living God will not strike you and your children with a curse. Yeah, we're not, we're not just there to smoke cigars. I'll tell you that right there. That's heavy stuff. We charge you to serve him in all diligence and honesty, so that the blessings of the covenant may extend to your children for a thousand generations. Right? If, if you're governed like that, you, it, it might be easier to avoid becoming the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, as I said, was a council. And um, going back to Numbers, chapter 11, it's based on what Moses had done in Israel. And that's what the elders and apostles are doing. Because the Sanhedrin were made up of two different parties, and they would sit together and decide cases in Israel. And so when Acts 15 comes around and they have a problem in Antioch, they do what they have learned, and that is they have a council and sits, and it's just like the Sanhedrin. I think they didn't use the same word on purpose, because as, as often happens with these kinds of things, the word becomes associated with bad things. So they didn't call themselves a Sanhedrin. They called themselves a presbytery. Now, if you go back to the second century, to Father Ignatius, he refers to presbyteries. Okay? Presbyterianism was not invented by John Knox and John Calvin drinking beers in Geneva. As often as people ask me, why are you following a church government invented by a bunch of guys who drank too much beer in Central Europe in, in, in the 16th century? Well, that's actually not what I'm doing. Okay? Presbyterianism is referred to not only in the New Testament, by, but also by Ignatius in the 2nd century. And then the presbyters stood upon the same footing as one another. There was no bishops at that time. Early in the post-apostolic age, one of the presbyters rose by what was probably a process of natural evolution to a position of predominance that is now known as the bishop. So where did bishops come from? Well, if you have party, like groups of men who gather from time to time, you put somebody in charge of that group. And over time, that person becomes more and more eminent. You go through the Middle Ages, and you go through the age of dukes. I'm not going to explain that too much, but kings, essentially. And what you have are bishops and dukes are the same thing. But one's in charge of the church, and one's in charge of the kingdoms of men. 
But they have palaces, and they have golden armor, and they have swords, and they have all this nonsense. But originally, everybody who goes to a presbytery is equal. When Joel and I go, Jared goes, when we go to these meetings, our voice and our vote count equally with one another, equal to everyone else there. There's not somebody who I ha- whose ring I have to kiss. Again, the Eastern Europeans, when, I, when they see me, they, t- they do this thing they do to bishops there to make me really uncomfortable because they know I don't like it. They, they touch my beard to their forehead. And I'm like, oh, you guys. Okay? I'm an American. Stop it. We don't have bishops. But it, right? this is the practices. <laughs> this is what happens. It's really funny. Eugene is laughing because I think he knows who I mean. Anyway, cardinals, bishops, archbishops, all that nonsense came later. When you go to Acts 15, what do you find? You find it in simplicity, right? You find the simple gathering of elders to discuss a, a very important topic that, is, uh, that has to do with the local church. The council is formed of elders to discuss something that's very, very, very important. Okay, reports of, of Paul's and Barnabas's direct contact with the Gentiles on their first missionary journey reached Judea and Jerusalem, um, through John Mark after he returned home. John Mark was home, and he starts telling everybody, hey, guys, guess what happened? And there are, there are, again, Hellenists and Jews, and the Jews are like, wait, what? What do you mean, Gentiles? Can you explain that? So you circumcised them, right? Right? And John Mark's like, no, we didn't, because we don't have to. And then they started to fight. They start to debate. They start to argue. Because the Hellenists and the Jews, all through the book of Acts, are constantly at one another, like Baptists and Presbyterians. It's the same thing. Why are you guys always arguing? (laughs) Because we don't agree. Okay, so what are we going to do? Well, let's sit down together and let's discuss it. And they they don't throw one party out. They give equal voice to everyone. And that's why they they um, gathered together because of the reports that were coming back ahead of them. Now, what I'm going to do is actually read this section finally. Sheesh. And what I want to do is I want you now, after the introduction, to hear what occurs in Acts 15 and, and, and perhaps hear it in a new way. Okay? Hear it in a new way. This is what it says in Acts 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to, the, to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the con- conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and with this the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, the first thing I want to say here is that if you then go on to read the letter, it sounds in the letter like they're not addressing the Jews, who are the ones raising the controversy. The letter addresses the Gentiles. Because people hear this, this section, and what they think is, oh, the Judaizers are getting handed their lunch again. Okay? The Judaizers are being put in their place. But they listen to the arguments of the Judaizers, and they take them seriously. And, and because of their concern to be holy and upright and, and, and to obey God, they actually then write a letter to the Gentiles, teaching them how to conduct themselves so as not to offend their Jewish brothers. Now, they don't say, okay, no, now everybody gets circumcised and follow the law of Moses to the letter. No, they don't say that. But they also don't, the letter they write is to the Gentiles. And that, I think, we often miss. And, and this, again, is something that I love about the Series C, because there were a bunch of independent churches doing their own thing, and they realized that it wasn't biblical, and so they got together, and they said, well, how are we all going to get together? Because some of us are Jews, and some of us are, are, um, some of us are Greeks, right? This guy is a Baptist. This guy is an Anglican. That guy, I'm not really sure yet. And so they're like, well, what are we going to do? Well, what they did then is they said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll have a, a government based on Acts 15. Presbyterianism has been around a while now, so we'll take the best parts of it. That's how I said it. We'll take the best parts of it, and then what we'll do is take confessions from all kinds of different um, backgrounds so that we can all, so Jews and Gentiles can sit down together. People think that Acts 15 is putting the Judaizers in their place, and it's actually not whether they take the arguments that they have and they take them very seriously, and they instruct the rest of the church as to how to take it seriously. And, and so when the Series C got together, it wasn't just a bunch of reform guys hugging each other. It was like, no, I mean, we, we all agree on education, we all agree on worship, we all agree on the culture wars, and we have all these Jews and all these Greeks, and what we've got to do is figure out how to, how to have fellowship together. Right? And some people think, don't bring the kids to the wine and bread. Some people think, don't bring them to the water. And what, what we have to do is take those arguments seriously. So, so this is what I love, right? <laughs> We're so pugnacious. We're so swaggering, just like put everybody in their place with our weapons-grade Calvinism. But the CREC is more like Acts 15 than people realize. Because in Acts 15, there's a great deal of compassion for the views of the Jews, right? They're, we are so used to smacking them around like, oh, look at Jesus, he's putting them in their place again. But once they became Christians, it was very, very difficult for them to understand any other way of doing it. They had generations of the Westminster Standard, I mean, of the Law of Moses, in their blood that they needed, they needed to be, we needed to respect them and, and their adherence to it. Like, man, guys, 
you guys really care about this, this confession a lot. Okay, well, what we'll do is we'll figure out a way for all of us to live together. We'll respect your extremely high standards. <laughs> if you respect the uh, West, or what, what is it, the Reformed Evangelical Confession, which as confessions go, is like the most vanilla basic thing that you could possibly have. And there's some of us who are like, yeah, this is about as far as I'm willing to go. But I can tell that you have super high standards. So when we gather together, I'll respect that. I'll make sure that I don't right, eat animals offered to idols in front of you because that seems to bother you. I'm mixing metaphors here. Everyone's all confused. Nobody at Presbytery is concerned about where we get our steak from. They just care that they're steak. So backing up just a moment. This is, so in Antioch who had sent these missionaries out. Paul, at this point, is not the star of the show, by the way. He, he talks a little bit, but he's not even as predominant as, as Barnabas. But he has run into a controversy because people think that he's telling Christians, Jewish Christians, to throw off the law of Moses, which isn't what he's telling them. But, but they get the, into this debate, and he tries debating with them. And isn't it funny, the man who wrote Romans, right? He, he's sitting here, he's having these arguments, and he's not winning. He's not winning them over. I find this quite fascinating. Even Paul had to appeal to the elders of other churches. And if Paul had to appeal to the elders of other churches, so-and-so from whatever community church might need to think that he needs to appeal to some elders of another church from time to time, perhaps. Okay? Otherwise, you end up, what I have actually seen, is on to celebrate Easter, a church used honey and milk for communion. Now, I wish I would have been in the elders' meeting when they had that decision. Because I would have been like, you know, Antioch, here in Antioch, what we ought to do is send up to Jerusalem and find out if this is heresy. Because it might be. Because you can't just use whatever elements you want. Okay? And, and this is, <laughs> you go to other community churches, independent churches, home churches, and I am somewhat, at this point, scandalized at what I see. It's like, did anybody think that perhaps this was a bad idea? Okay, if anyone thought this was a bad idea, I want him to be in charge now. Okay, because, and then here's what you need to do is when you find out, like Paul, that you can't win the argument, you can't figure it out yourselves, why don't you send out for some help from some other churches? And that's what they do. And so they, they appoint um, Paul and Barnabas and others to represent the Antioch church and to go to Jerusalem, which is 250 miles away. Okay, this was not easier, but it was the right thing to do. And so on their way, what I like about this, because it's very subtle, Paul, he, he's going from town to town telling everybody all the good things God has done. And I, and I kind of feel like he's hitting, like he, he's out stumping for his position. He's like going church to church, and he's getting out ahead of the argument, and he's like spreading the word about how things have gone for him. And I, and I think there's a little politicizing here, which is funny, because 250 miles is a long way. It took him a while to get there. So he stops along the way. And he's trying to, like, win people to his cause. Why? Because those other churches are also going to send delegates. Now, you can like or not like this kind of thing, but I recognize it because it's, it, you know, as Presbyterian years, there's a whole lot of pastors I start calling and just be like, oh, hey, how are you? Yeah, how's your church? Oh, yeah, what are you going to How are you going to vote when you go to Presbyterian on this one issue? I'm just curious. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's politicking a little bit. But he finally gets there, and what they do is they, they do not just simply say, yes, Paul is correct, send everybody else out. No, they have a debate, and they let both sides present their arguments. Now, if you look at the arguments themselves, what you actually find 
is that Paul's is not based on the word of God. I'm sorry, Peter's. Peter's argument is not based on the word of God. It's based on experience. When he went to Cornelius' house and the sheet came down out of heaven and God the Father told him to violate the law of Moses, that was a, revela- a direct revelation that he had. And what he, he is making an argument from his own experience. And, and this is the kind of thing that you get when you have a bunch of elders get together. One elder will get up and be like, hey, listen, this issue that you guys are talking about, let me tell you I've been there and this is what happened. And this is what was good, this is what was bad, this is what I learned, this is what I didn't learn, this is what I wish I knew that I didn't know. And then everybody's writing notes down, and we go back to our churches, and we, do, we learn from that man's experience. So I like that Peter is not making a biblical argument. He's making one from sanctified wisdom. One that has been directly affected by the word direct revelation from God. He is an apostle, after all. But essentially, that's what he's doing. So it's James who stands up and gives the biblical argument. Also, interestingly enough, he's the last one to speak. And and this is something that happens. As I've said, everybody's vote is equal. Everyone's voice is equal. But there are men in our Presbytery that speak last. Why? Right? I'll give you one name. Jack Phelps. Right? I'm, I'm often the parliamentarian. It's my responsibility to make sure we conduct our affairs correctly and everyone follows the rules. And, and my joke is always like, well, I, I will just ask what, I'll just ask Jack what we're supposed to do, right? Because Jack is nearly 90 years old. He's been a minister for 50 years. And, and when he's in the room, all the young guys are like, and then Jack says, you know, he puts up his card and he wants to talk and everyone shuts up, right? Because we show deference to age and wisdom. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we always go with what he does. But here, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, the author of one of the epistles in the New Testament, is the last one to speak. And what it shows us is who is the pillar in Jerusalem. The argument at the t- that the, the Roman Catholics have, this is why I'm going down this road so hard, is that Peter was the chief apostle. But what you see is that even when the apostles and elders gather together in Jerusalem, the chief man who stands up and speaks, the last one, is James. And James makes a biblical argument. Peter has said, this is what God has done. He has given the same spirit that, to the Gentiles as to the Jews because he looks upon the heart, because he understands that he will save anyone and everyone. He promised to Abraham that he would do it. He's doing it. Amen. And then he goes back and he makes an argument from several books of the Old Testament, from Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. And he makes this argument. He puts it together. And why? So that when they write to the Gentiles and the Jews as to what it is they're supposed to do, there's scriptural basis for it, right? Because, and, and this is why, like, when you look up the Westminster Confession, and it has the confession, there's these little numbers for every, almost sometimes every word. And what it has is you go and you look up the verses. You're like, oh, these guys were not just making this stuff up out of thin air, right? So even when you sit down and you have these subjective arguments, Paul Peter or Barnabas, and they're talking about experiences that they've had, ultimately what you have to do is sit down and open the Bible and figure out, is this legitimate or not? We're going to run these experiences through the filter of the scriptures and decide what to do. And this is one of my number one reasons why people need to do this kind of thing. Right? This is why we need Presbyterians. Somebody's got to sit down. Let's all talk. Let's all get our opinions out, no matter how contrary they are to one another. Let's discuss it. Let's talk about our feelings Let's talk about how we feel about this, what we've experienced. And then somebody at the end is be like, okay, well, let's run that now through the filter of the Bible and see if this is legitimate in any way, shape, or form. Turns out that it is. 
Now, the decision that they come to is fascinating because, again, they do not write a letter to the Jews, but to the Greeks. The Gentiles were not being required to observe the Jewish ritual laws, okay? But the Jewish Christians, who did keep strict Torah observances, they can't even sit down with a Gentile and, and eat with them because the, the, the Gentile is unclean, right? Their conscience is troubled by the fact that this Gentile ate meat that he bought at a market that was probably offered to Diana, that this Gentile has um, sexual ethics that are different because, if you, right, a, a Gentile could, could be upright and pure in his marriage, but if you go back and you look at the law, there's all kinds of other laws that are, that are on, on top of sexual ethics besides just adultery and this kind of thing, right? How long do you wait after you have a baby and this kind of thing? There's these rules, and the Jews followed them, and the Gentiles didn't. And so they could become ritually unclean, and they feel like they can't go to synagogue, and they can't worship God because the Gentiles have made them dirty. Say, okay, well, you know what we're not going to do is put a burden on them, as Peter says, a yoke that you yourself cannot bear. But what we are going to do is ask them to follow a couple of rules. And those rules are abstaining from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, what's fascinating is that if you go back to Leviticus 17 and 18, Moses understood that, that there was a mixed multitude in Israel. You had Gentiles who were coming in and who were living amongst the Jews. And, and what, what James does is he takes the rules that those Gentiles were supposed to follow and gives them to the current Gentiles. Listen, if you guys just followed these rules, which Moses gave, right? So in a weird way, no, don't follow the law of Moses. But here, from the law of Moses, I'm going to show you what you ought to do. And I, and, and I could go off for another three hours on how this is how you use the law of Moses, but I'll save that for next Reformation Day. Okay? It's the exact opposite of what we think. He goes to the law of Moses. He says, you know what? There's wisdom here in the traditions of Israel, in the law that God has handed down to us. Gentiles ought to not do these things. And if they don't do these few things, then the fellowship between the Jews and the Gentiles should be no problem. So we're not, we're not going to make them do works righteousness, okay, Judaizers, but we're also going to take your, your desire to be pure and upright seriously. And this, right? how badly does the modern church need this kind of wisdom? How badly does the modern church need this kind of organization? How badly does the modern church need this kind of complication in its lives? Because now we're like, hey, I'm no, no creed but Jesus, Okay, no creed but Jesus. You and your creeds and your confessions and you're overcomplicating everything. I believe all I need is my Bible and Jesus. Okay, well, you said the word believe, which is what creed means, and so you just said a creed. So even when you're arguing with people who say no creed but Jesus, no creed but Jesus is itself a creed. And, and this is what I'm talking about, about rootlessness and chaos. How should a church function? How should it worship? How should it disciple its saints? Guys, Okay, Jesus rose from the ground and ascended to the right hand of the Father how many thousands of years ago? And the church has been around a little bit. And what you can do is you can learn from its mistakes as well as the things that it did well and how to function. This is why, this is why I am so into presbyteries. This is why I'm so into this form of church government. Personally, when I was at Mars Hill... I'd only been a Christian for a couple of months, and lo and behold, I was in controversy with the elders. I don't think that's going to surprise anyone who knows me. Give me a couple of months. 
And I sat down with the elder who was my elder because that's how they did it. Here, this is your elder. If you have a problem, talk to him. There's 3,000 people that go here. I have to go. Okay? This is the guy you talk to. So I'm sitting down with him, and he's telling me what he thinks I ought to do. And I know that what he's telling me I ought to do is terrible and unbiblical. And he's trying. It's his real opinion. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Because I know two other elders at this church who are also friends of mine told me the exact opposite of what you're telling me now. So I thought, okay, so now what do I, what do, I do with this? So I said, okay, well, how about that? I wrote a letter. I said, how about you guys sit down together and debate this issue, like Acts 15, and tell me what you ought to do? And they're like, no, 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 no. You're pitting the elders against each other. So I did the only reasonable thing a millennial kid would do. I Googled it. Church government. I Googled church government. I said, this is chaos. This is nonsense. It's got to be done better than this. So I Googled church government. I go to Wikipedia. And I start reading about Episcopalian governments and Presbyterian governments and the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm reading all these things, and I was like, you know what sounds the most like Acts? It's Presbyterianism. Oh, lo and behold, that's what an elder is. It's a, presby- <laughs> it's a presbyter. And that's how I came to this conviction. I was like, okay, well, here's, I, here's my notice. I'm leaving this church, and I'm going to go find a church where the elders will sit down and act like Acts 15. And how many times, how many times have there been issues in this church over the years where the fact that you had elders who will sit down and talk to one another, right, who will do things decently and in order, saved us from all kinds of trouble, right? How many churches do you know can transition from one pastor to the next pastor and not lose any families? How many churches do you know that made it through COVID? Okay, and and I'm telling you, it's not the quality of the men. it, it, It has a lot to do with the system. The system itself is what works. Because the, pre- the Presbytery, our Presbytery, was able to put out information about how to handle COVID and how to handle um, vaccinations and all this kind of stuff in an instant. And so people could go with a letter from their, pres- from their denomination stating that we don't do this, so give me an exemption. Now, in states like ours, that didn't really work. But in states like Kentucky, that worked just fine. Okay, And, and there were independent churches whose pastors and home churches, whose, I don't know what you call them, were calling me and asking me to use the thing that my denomination used. And I said, you know what you ought to do is join us. <laughs> just become a mission church of us. And then you can get this kind of stuff. They just email it to you. You don't even have to ask. Now, I'm not dogmatic about much. But I am dogmatic about this. Okay, there, there's lots of forms that this kind of government can take. But we have got, it's, it's time for us, right? If we're, t- if we're going to be people who are leading the culture, especially the Christian culture in the Pacific Northwest, we have got to understand how this works. You have got to have elders who are putting things in order, who are upright and, and good men, leading well, and they have got to function well with other churches. If they can't function well with other churches, what are we going to, right? It, it's the Wild West. I had one... OPC pastor sitting down talking to me, and he did not want to come and minister out here. Because he's like, you know, it's like watching you guys, you know what it's like? It's like those Western movies where they have all the wagons in a big circle and they're shooting, and the Indians are just like, the pagans are all chaotically destroying everything, and they're all dying. He's like, that's what it seems like with your churches out here. I was like, yeah, yeah, there's room for another wagon. We can fit you in right between that wagon and that wagon. Okay, do you have a Winchester? Come on, let's do this. And this is literally how it works. I was having a conversation with another CRC minister in the Pacific Northwest last night about two churches that we know are friendly towards us that aren't in the CRC that we're going to try to 
bring in. Because why? Because we want to see order. We don't want to see chaos. We want to see strength. We don't want to see weakness. We want to see accountability. We don't want to see cowboys going out there doing it alone. Okay, there's no lone rangers here. It's pack of the wagon and get in line and let us head together out west and build something, just like our forebears did. And on Reformation Day, that's what I, I want to remember. It's not an accident. Okay, when you hear us talking about the polity that we have and the oversight that we have in this denomination that we're in, it's not something where I just picked, like we didn't just put our hand in a, in a hat and pull out a name of a, press, of a denomination and be like, well, I guess we'll join this one. Right? This is the spear point. And there is a war. And you guys are sitting here, and I want you to understand the kind of church you're in, and I want you to proselytize on half of it. Because you know Christians out there, don't you? You know Christians sitting in churches, and those churches are weak, those churches are foolish, those churches are going astray, and those Christians are out there, and it's a chaos. And what, what do they need? Right? During COVID, what was this place? We had people coming from all over the place. Why? They're like, look at that circle of wagons down there. I bet I could find some protection down there right now. And you're like, yeah, pull your wagon up right over there. And how many of those people became members? How many of those men are now in leadership class here? This is how it works. This is how we take ground. This is how we move the front line inch by inch by inch like in World War I. You take ground and you don't give it up. And so when we talk about this, when you're at your home, okay, on Saturday nights, this is what we do. We have a big feast. It's called the Lord's Dinner. We have a liturgy for it, and we do toasts. And for, for, for the foreseeable future, we will be toasting the CREC. We will, be to, we will be toasting John Knox and John Calvin and Presbyterianism and the fact that it brings order out of chaos. And we will pray that it, like the gospel, spreads to all the churches in the Pacific Northwest. That's how strongly I feel about this. Because it's Christ or chaos. It's Christ or chaos. And because we choose Christ, we choose this form of government. We, we, we choose this government, this polity, this way of doing business, this kind of humility that these men had, this kind of unity that they had. As for us in this house, we choose the Lord, and thus we choose Presbyterianism. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that out of chaos you bring order by your spirit. Lord God, we, we thank you that you have given us wisdom and understanding from the apostles as to how to conduct our affairs, how to be unified, how to be compassionate toward other views. Lord, how to build, um, to, to see your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. I thank you for our heritage. I thank you for this denomination. I thank you for this church and, and its elders who have always been faithful to your word. And I pray, Lord, that it, the current elders would continue uh, to honor you and serve you just as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.